Welcome to Be Simply This Is She, and I want to thank you for joining us today with special guests, Brendan Bonner and Emily Walkley. They are from the Center of Discovery, and today we are going to talk about eating disorders. The Center for Discovery is a place that's dedicated to providing recovery for those that are suffering from mental illness, eating disorders, addiction, and so much more. And today we're going to focus on the eating disorders and what's possible for not only the individual, but the entire support crew when someone enters treatment and begins their path to recovery. So without further ado, we're going to dive in with Emily. and. So today we have here Brendan and Emily from the Center of Discovery. I want to thank you guys both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today, you know, we just had a little chat about all the amazing things you do. A rehabilitation center on on many different levels kind of gives the listeners an overarching view of what the center does and your reach, and and then we'll go and dive into some of the other deeper uh, subject matters from there. So at Center for Discovery, at least uh, in the realm that Brendan and I work, we we treat clients uh, of all ages struggling with eating disorders, disordered eating, body image issues, and disordered relationships with exercise. And we treat clients at uh, residential levels of care, at day treatment levels as well. And so while we do see primarily, you know, folks coming into us with eating disorders, obviously, uh, most, if not uh, all, of our clients are struggling with co-occurring disorders as well. So we really cover in the treatment and recovery process a lot of a lot of different areas and there's so many opportunities to to focus on different areas of struggle i would say mm-hmm. how often uh, it is that there are coexisting conditions that need addressed and how powerful it is that you guys offer the opportunity to address those in a, a holistic and kind of an integrative approach from my perspective I think it, most, if not all, uh, have some other uh, kind of uh, issue that is going on that seems to go and su- support or embolden the eating disorder. Um, you know, I think um, Emily can relate to this. In, in the way that we kind of conceptualize working with eating disorders, it's, it's somewhat of a, uh, like an iceberg uh, in that, you know, the, the part that you see, the smaller part of the iceberg, that is the, the food or the behaviors or the weight, uh, you know, all the things that I think you can uh, mostly see. Um, but the larger piece under the water, the larger, you know, and the, uh, the things that you can't see uh, that are going on, which is the whole emotional side. Um, so, you know, when we're looking, when we're treating clients, many of them deal with some form of depression or anxiety or, uh, struggling with issues around attachment or um, there's just a whole host of other things that are going under the surface that I think the way we see it is really the thing that's driving the eating disorder. So in treating them, you, you kind of have to treat both. Um, right. And very often, um, again, if not all of them are dealing with some, some issue around there or, uh, or at least underneath there. And can you share with the listeners a little bit of what that looks like as far as maybe mm-hmm. your, your, personally your child or you uh, struggles with your relationship, let's say, with food, and uh, you can sh- share some of the, the signals that suggest maybe that you have an eating disorder. And then if you can share some of the indicators on a level of other elements that might coexist with you, because I think that's so well said that, you know, we can't just treat one aspect and not acknowledge the maybe the roots that are driving that behavior. Mm-hmm. When most of us think think about eating disorders, and they think about body image. You know, like oh, I I want to lose you know however much weight. You know, I want to tone up. I want to do this. And in reality, all of that is coming from somewhere, and that's that's hardly even you know scratching the surface of what might be going on for somebody. That might not actually even be a part of somebody's issues uh, around food or exercise, right? And so the, the intertwined nature of, you know, the, the compilation of struggles that somebody might be going through in their life is, is generally what gives rise to, again, what Brendan was speaking to about the part of the iceberg that you can see, the observable stuff that might be the, the thing that gets somebody maybe to seek help. Um, 
but really, again, it's that kind of that firestorm underneath that all, you know, causes, I think, the continuation, the proliferation of the stuff that people are, are able to see. And so in digging beneath the surface and really taking aim at maybe the traumatic events that somebody has experienced, the, the even micro traumas that we all go, kind of go through every day, the, you know, whatever it might be, again, those attachment issues, relationship issues, um, somebody might not be so attuned to how much those things are affecting their lives until it, it is reflected in this more physical way that somebody else can see, that somebody else can identify, hey, you look like you're struggling or I'm observing that there might be something going on with you. What from maybe uh, support, you know, a family member or a parent to a child, what are some of the indicators that they might look for uh, that would give them kind of a clue that something's going on? Because oftentimes we can get really busy, even if it's like your partner or your spouse or it's your child, we can get so wrapped up in work or life that we stop, we forget to look and say, wow, something's a little different here. You know, I think some are, some are uh, obvious and maybe some are not so obvious. So off the top of my head, I'm just thinking, you know, if there's uh, drastic weight loss over a shortened period of time, uh, refusal of meals, uh, you know, if a family usually eats and one member is just wants to, uh, you know, refuses to participate or eat, um, those are some um, kind of obvious or, or apparent indicators. Um, also, uh, if a lot of times that's coupled with um, abusive exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of eating, they are in their room doing crunches or, uh, or yoga or, you know, uh, long walks or runs, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, and then, and then there are other uh, other things that are not so uh, not so obvious or apparent, um, and that's I think around maybe the uh, the binge and purging, uh, or the uh, or just the binge uh, the binge eating. Um, a lot of that is is driven by shame and, and guilt, so that tends to go uh, kind of in secret a lot of times. That's a little bit more difficult, I think, for. Uh, for parents to to be aware of, we in a culture that's just obsessed with with uh, with body image and um, and quote looking good. Um, a lot of these other ones will go go hiding and go uh, will go in secret. Um, you know because of the culture and the what reflects back is that shame that uh, you know of of the amount of food that they're. Well, let's talk about two things. One. If you could define that word abuse of exercise, because I think that's, you know, even within self, if you're an adult or your kids, it's, it's good to be able to define some of these terms so they can understand what that might look like. Because some of this stuff could be considered the norm in a family mm-hmm. dynamic. When we conceptualize the idea of disordered exercise or even just disordered eating, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of this, I think it's different for everyone in that we're, we're really looking at a, a change in how somebody kind of typically goes through their life, right? So if, if you're noticing maybe that your child, you know, just was an, you know, might be an athlete growing up and then all of a sudden after soccer practice, they now insist that they run home instead of get picked up or in the morning before they go to school that they insist on going to the gym or I, you know, canceling plans with their friends to go, you know, to a hot yoga class, whatever it might be. We're looking kind of from a, for a departure from the norm and, and also foregoing other things in their life that they have typically enjoyed for the sake of engaging in movement and movement that's attached to um, it's like some of those body image issues that, that is purposeful in their minds for the sake of controlling what their body looks like or giving them permission to, to eat or to eat a certain type of food. Um, so we can really look at it as the difference between kind of joyful movement and movement for the sake of like true like mental health benefits or physical health benefits crossing over into it being uh, like a mandate or something that allows for something else to happen, I guess is how, mm-hmm. I, would, how I would kind of describe it. That's, I think that's uh, really what Emily just said, uh, how it becomes a mandate, that, that's a really great way to describe it. 
before we started talking, we were uh, sharing about some of the stigmatism for maybe the individual and parents to child because they have a responsibility to their caretakers to make sure that they're in well-being to the best of their capability. And, you know, I was sharing with you guys that I want to encourage people that what the possibility is to bring yourself into well-being and that if if one can see it as that versus the stigma that might be attached to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you can share a little bit about that, what the possibility is, within the treatment, and then also speaking maybe to the parents or a partner or spouse or a friend or a loved one that might be able to encourage it, even an adult, to go into treatment, um, you know, what, what that looks like for them. That's a, that's a, it's a really interesting question just because um, when, when people come in for an assessment or for just to tour our, uh, you know, the, where I work or where Emily works, the idea that I think we get across is that it's going to be very individualized. Their treatment is going to be very individualized. So my question also always is, what do you want to get out of this? Um, I think that is the possibility of treatment. Um, if you're looking from, you know, for, for freedom from whatever it is that you feel binds you or, uh, or uh, holds you back, I think that is the thing, that is the goal that we're always going to work on that becomes the possibility of treatment. Um, you know, we have a, a way of doing things, uh, sort of a, a template here in the way that we conceptualize or approach treatment. But uh, if we were to just do, I think, a cookie-cutter version of what we think treatment is, it would certainly alienate each person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we, we really need to consider what do they think is the possibility of treatment? What do they want to get out of that? Mm-hmm. Um, does that make make sense? Absolutely. And and how do you steer uh, the person, you know, if if they answer that question, like, what I want to get out of that? I would imagine their thoughts in the beginning are a little bit different as they get into the program that kind of shifts. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can share a little bit about some of those, like, maybe what people share initially and then what, they, they realize that through the process, because I think even hearing that sometimes people can self-realize like, wow, that's actually, I really want food from that. <laughs> but they might go in and have a perception of one thing just because of where they are within their condition, you know, their state of being, yeah, if that I makes think, sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think we see uh, a lot a lot of major shifts in that way for folks who are initially coming in and and what they're stating their goals might be or their hopes might be to how they transform throughout the treatment process. And then, you know, even from, you know, their last day, you know, leaving treatment, leaving the program and kind of moving on to the next phase of their recovery process. I think oftentimes what I hear clients identifying or even family members and loved ones identifying in the beginning is, you know, my goal is to kind of return to my, a more functional state. So it's a really pragmatic thing. We're talking about the practical implications or how, how the eating disorder or struggles with exercise have impacted kind of their daily living and their ability to show up in their lives. And that's all well and good. Like those are fantastic goals and hopes to have. And those are things that we of course work on throughout the treatment process. But I think as somebody gets more integrated into the process, they start to uncover a little bit more, what else might be at play. So while initially it might be, I need to stop binging and purging because, you know, it causes me to, you know, miss school half, half the days out of the year and that's causing my grades to go down. They might find I want to be free from like kind of these thoughts that plague me throughout the day, you know, whether or not I'm, it, it looks to other people like I'm not functioning as well as, as I was. We get to that kind of deeper level stuff and we find more of the roots of where the eating disorder came from and perhaps why it's continuing to have a purpose in somebody's life. So I think mm-hmm. that's where I see the, the biggest shift at least from this, the apparent and the, um, yeah, kind of the, the obvious impact to there are um, kind of wider reaching uh, impacts that this thing has over my life and over my just general well-being and relationship with myself. And if you can share a little bit about how to encourage parents that 
to maybe move past their own fears about maybe uh, placing their children in treatment and how it can improve the quality of life not only for their child but for the entire family. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't pretend to know what it's like to be a parent because I'm not one. <laughs> I mean, I, I have parents, and in talking with them about how they kind of dealt with seeing some stuff emerge with me when I was a teenager and kind of what barriers they felt or the overwhelm or panic, um, I think I've learned a lot from that and from working with the families that, that we've worked with over the years, kind of gleaned an understanding that it's a little bit different for every family what the approach might need to be or what everyone's comfort level is with even talking about this sort of stuff. I mean, so if the family dynamic to begin with is one such that feelings aren't generally discussed or addressed or acknowledged or encouraged, um, we're going to be approaching it from a different position than maybe the family who does sit around the fireplace and talks about, you know, what they, what's going on with them. I guess one of the, the first things I encourage families to do is to not feel as though they're supposed to act like the tough ones through all of this. That, yes, of course, as a parent, I imagine the sense is, like, I need to be the rock for my kid or I need to be that secure anchor. And, and sure, and also everyone has emotions. And to, to try to display for your child or any loved one that you're not impacted or that you don't have an emotional reaction to the situation, it actually doesn't benefit anyone, certainly not the person who's holding in those feelings and also not, you know, not the person who's struggling with maybe the disordered relationship with food or exercise. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think, one of the first things that I encourage families to do just to maybe say the same thing but differently uh i you know we really try to have the family understand that you know if if you're going to pull out one part of the system and have them change or shift or even transform uh it is natural that the system might shift and change and transform as well uh and it it's actually more beneficial for the the client, if that happens, is if they are going through the process to the extent that they can with the client. Um, you know, again, it, kind of going back to the thing earlier, is it's it's much easier if the client thinks that the family is kind of uh, there in support and with them rather than them being the identified problem and that something is wrong that needs to be changed specifically with them while the family stays the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we really try to, you know, uh, get across the idea that this is something that, you know, can change or transform the family, make them a a tighter unit uh, as they grow together. Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. And, you know, I am a parent, so I can speak to the the fears. (laughs) But, you know, I have one kid that's in college and one in high school and, you know, I definitely watch, you know, teens go through what I call their dark shadow night. They're trying to mm-hmm. find out who they are in the world, understand their emotions, where they belong. And, you know, if you don't watch that, it, they can go to a dark place. And so mm-hmm. it, is, it is scary. So to any parents that are listening, but their well-being, from my opinion, like their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health is more important than anything that they might be missing out on in school mm-hmm. or any of that um, from my perspective as a parent. And, you know, that's so, and so then also speaking about the possibility of, you know, a little bit further, if you guys don't mind, a little bit more of what it looks like where the parents and the family or the support people start to transform. Because I can totally see the picture that you guys are painting that maybe you put someone in treatment and they're like, okay, they're going to go do that and we don't have to address anything over here. But if you can also share to those that, you know, bring their children here, the possibility for them to transform in this process and what that looks like on the other side for an Mm -hmm. entire family unit. Yeah, I think where I would want to start with that is another of the first. Apparently I tell families a lot of things at first. Um, I don't, there's never somebody to be blamed for, for somebody developing an eating disorder. So whether it's your child, your partner, your parents, you know, whoever, there is no blame being placed. And, and I imagine that can be quite a barrier to somebody 
seeking treatment or to the comfort level with loved ones participating in treatment is like, am I, am I at fault here? Like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Um, and the just, it, it is difficult to, I think it's, it's a challenge for some parents to, to shift from blame to being the parent and maybe being responsible for, uh, you know, for the family dynamic or fa- the family unit mm-hmm. uh, and where to fall on that line. Like, is it my fault or can I actually just be responsible for this and, and drive, uh, you know, drive the family's recovery? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think when we use, and I'll speak for Brendan here just because I think we're on the same page with this. We usually are. When, when we talk about family involvement, um, we define family super broadly. So I don't just mean like the nuclear family, the mm-hmm. blood relations. Mm-hmm. We might, when I say family, I might be talking about roommate, coach, coworker, whoever, like what, whoever this, yeah. this person's um, community is, support system is, the people they're surrounded by. Like that's, that's what I think of when I think about family. And anyone or everyone's involvement in the treatment process is going to inevitably lead to increasing emotional intelligence and ability, you know, so while certainly, obviously we focus on the treatment of eating disorders, we're treating entire systems again and Mm -hmm. breakdowns in communication. And we're trying to transform the way that people relate to one another so that when struggles come up in the future and and not necessarily around eating disorder issues, but just any interpersonal struggles or dynamic system struggles, these folks have gained some knowledge about how to approach them and how to work through them or gained a greater understanding of what some of the warning signs might be to intervene in, in these issues a little bit sooner. Um, and again, not coming from a place of blame. Um, I, think, I think it's really important to look at, you know, kind of where a system is going as opposed to maybe even why the issue started. I think sometimes when people think about therapy, it's, oh, I want, want to get to the root. I want to get to the cause. Why did this come up initially? And not to say that that's unimportant. That can be super helpful information in the process. But I personally, at least, am more interested in why is it still holding a place in somebody's life? Or mm-hmm. how, is it, how is it affecting the system now? what role or purpose does it serve now? Cause that might be different from the reason that it started and what are we going to do moving forward? Um, because that's all we really do have control over. We can't go back and, and undo whatever, you know, the perfect storm was that might've led to the, to the creation of these struggles. Um, and I think parents, loved ones, whoever feel a little bit relieved when they hear that that is really the aim of the recovery mm-hmm. process. The, the difference of the worlds that are created when you, uh, you know, between asking questions with why versus how, um, mm. you know, just to, to jump on um, Emily's point there is that in, in, in when you're asking how questions, um, it, it pulls people's curiosity much more than why. Why seems to assign blame. Mm-hmm. How gets them curious about uh, how the whole thing is working and, how possibly how they can change change it. Yeah, I think it puts people in a position of, of feeling more empowered yes. rather than sense of their own agency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like what what can we do now? What what action can everyone take? Um, and how can we all move forward as as a cohesive unit, you know, depending on everyone's kind of role in that process. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And well two things that are you guys are touching on some really juicy points is that Emotional intelligence, I would love for you to speak a little bit about that because you hit on it earlier that uh, sometimes there might be families that are very emotive, you know, they're, they're very accustomed to talking about their feelings and all of that, and then there's families that don't allow for or even know how to emote. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you could share a little bit about that, defining emotional intelligence and, again, that possibility within having and cultivating some emotional tel- intelligence from within? I try to work on it with each and every client, is, is, uh, and it, I, I try to make it one of the first questions I ask them, which is, um, wh- uh, what do you see as the, the role of the eating disorder in your life? Um, like, what do you see as uh, the eating disorder's purpose? 
um, you know, many times it, it, it is, uh, it, it's their main coping skills, the thing they've been able to rely on. Um, and uh, a lot of times they, they don't know that and they begin to define what it is for themselves and have an understanding of what it is for themselves. And I think in that, that's the process of, um, of uh, kind of helping along or emboldening their own, uh, their own curiosity of this experience, uh, and then thus kind of increasing, I think, their emotional intelligence about who they are as people and why they're doing what they're doing, how it got to be this way. Um, I think as, as family as well, that's a, a question for the family. Um, in, in increasing the family's emotional uh, intelligence. Love that you were both were diving into is that forward motion that uh, we mm. can get hiccups on the story of the past, which then beca- can become a little distorted because I don't know. Every time if you play the game, the game of telephone around in a circle, the story drastic mm-hmm. changes by the time you get all the way around the circle if everyone's communicating what was told to them. Forward motion for everyone and the possibility of shifting maybe a habitual pattern based on being trapped in the past. If you could share a little bit about the importance of that and also maybe how you guys encourage that, not only with your clients but also with the support system. I think the way that we most often um, encourage, you know, kind of the, the curiosity around how, you know, how, what the eating disorder is serving currently and, um, how we can all move forward is I try to really get clear with the client on, you know, today, if you didn't have your eating disorder, what would you be needing? Like, where, what would the gap be then? Like, what did it do for you today or, or in, you know, the last instance that you might have used an eating disorder behavior? When you purged your breakfast this morning, what did it do for you? You know, what function did it serve? Um, and I think sometimes, too, um, maybe people outside the eating disorder, either like treatment world or outside the kind of understanding about how we talk about these sorts of things, looking at the function of the eating disorder might seem crazy or honoring the fact that it has served as an effective coping skill for somebody. It, it, it sounds a little bit nuts. It sounds like we're almost like encouraging it. But in reality, if, if we don't acknowledge that an eating disorder has started for a reason that has a purpose, we're never going to figure out where those gaps are in, in where somebody's needs aren't getting met, you know? So if we right. look at maybe a, a client who uses exercise, um, you know, to numb out from the, I don't know, maybe the pain of a recent breakup, for example, if we don't get at this person is, is dying for some relief from really overwhelming feelings, we're not going to be able to figure out what coping skills we can put in place to tackle that, that sort of thing. Right. And if you guys can share some of the, like, success stories without going too personal into any of your clients, obviously, uh, keeping their confidentiality, but if you can share what it looks like on the other side of this process. I think just to kind of also, um, this might also speak to that, just the last question about, uh, about mo- forward motion or uh, moving forward, um, is that, there, you know, I think that there's a couple of schools of thought as far as what the end goal is uh, around treatment. Um, a lot of people come in thinking they're going to be um, cured. Sometimes it might look like successful treatment might look like maybe uh, binging every other week uh, versus you were binging three times a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that uh, you know, it, because we have to deal with insurance, and uh, we have a, a certain, to a certain degree, a limited amount of time with each client um, that a lot of times, you know, the, this is the first step on a very long road um, and that what a successful treatment stay looks like, you know, again, might be um, not the complete cessation of behaviors, but certainly a, a significant reduction in what they're doing uh, and possibly the addition of, uh, alternative coping skills. Um, mm. So, you know, whereas they're, you know, using uh, something called opposite action four more times a week than they were at, ever doing, um, I think that is the beginning of a, a you know, a, a successful road to recovery. 
Mm. And I think keeping keeping the idea of, of adjusting expectations in mind is super important. Um, because if if a client or if family loved ones have this sense again that somebody is going to be, you know, perfectly cured as soon as they step out of the doors of a treatment facility, it just sets people up to be disappointed and creates this this level of pressure for the individual who who is going through the program. And so while we do want to, you know, set goals and have these hopes, looking at the recovery process in a in a longer term sense is is really important and celebrating every success to Brendan's point is I think the the key in keeping up momentum. You know, so while somebody might be hoping that by the time they step out of our doors that they are, you know, following a, a set meal plan perfectly and, you know, have entirely stopped binging and purging or, or stopped, you know, spending hours in front of the mirror, we need to celebrate that reduction in those behaviors, that increase in uh, utilizing adaptive coping skills so that that person feels encouraged to continue on this journey and, and, and does let themselves get excited about these seemingly small victories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure who said this, but I, I love this, is that uh, the road to recovery is paved with small wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, no, you know, uh, no win is too small. And I think it, reflecting mm-hmm. that, that back to the client and to the families as much as possible uh, kind of really engages their own sense of agency to want to continue this when they leave. Absolutely. And to give perspective to that, maybe an analogy or a metaphor for those that, you know, can't maybe relate to some of the struggles that someone goes through with an eating disorder or why they might use food to control their life or themselves, if you can share a little bit about um, that, that in that, you know, it takes us all a while to re form healthy habits or a new way of a new lifestyle and that it doesn't happen overnight and that we all can like have little setbacks but we can keep moving forward or we just have consistent improvement. I I hear from um, whether it be community members, family members, loved ones a fair bit that, you know, I don't understand. Like why, why would somebody do this themselves? Like how could that possibly be helpful in that way? That seems so counterintuitive. Um, I think probably just as human beings, we can all probably look at some point in our lives or some means of coping in our lives that probably doesn't seem very effective on the surface, might actually be, or, you know, if we look at it rationally, we're like, yeah, wow, what the heck? That's not even getting at the aim that I was hoping for. So I, I offer permission a lot of times to the loved ones in that, like, nobody's expected to maybe fully understand why or be able to put themselves in the position of the individual who is struggling, and that that's okay, that nobody's expected to become the expert on their loved one's recovery process or even level of struggle. I think the, the best or the most helpful metaphor that I've come across, and I, I definitely cannot claim it as my own, but one that was shared with me several years ago uh, about kind of how the recovery process works, and I think this is probably quite applicable to just recovery from from any area of struggle, is thinking about kind of this old, like, dilapidated house. And, you know, ultimately you need to tear this thing down and, and build this solid, like, new, beautiful, shiny thing that's better able to withstand, you know, the elements. Um, but what it takes to get there is, you know, kind of surveying the situation and and tearing that house down piece by piece and checking out this foundation and and pulling that all up and and leveling the lot and re-pouring that foundation. And I'm not in construction, so I'm probably missing several um, key steps in what it actually takes to rebuild something. But yeah, you're you're in complete violation of coding. (laughs) There are engineers involved in there. You know, they have a place, certainly designers, but like if I think that's just an easier way for people to kind of conceptualize what this process is like that takes understanding of the specific area of struggle out of it and recognizing that why things can get stalled out at any place in this process and why um, even just being, just getting to the point where you're at level ground again is 
is a huge place to be at, and and there's there's a lot of space for hope in in that sense. It can really help people wrap their minds around, at least again, vaguely like what this process is like and what it takes. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And if you can share with the listeners a little bit about what the different programs look like, just an overview so they can get a sense of maybe what they experience or one, one aspect of the program, programs that you offer that you feel would be helpful to give people an idea of what it looks like. Sure, yeah. So within eating disorder treatment, there are uh, several levels of care, the highest of which is inpatient hospitalization. So that's um, the level of care somebody might seek when they are needing significant medical stabilization and monitoring. So somebody is actually in a hospital setting getting round-the-clock care by medical and therapeutic and dietary staff, of course. Um, Next level of care down would be residential. So the individual is living in a home-like environment, um, still with some medical monitoring, um, a more significant therapeutic component at that level of care. Folks are going through um, days full of group therapy sessions, individual sessions, and supportive meals and snacks. Um, the next level of care down, which is where Brendan and myself um, run our facilities, is uh, partial hospitalization. It's you know, it's a little bit different within every organization, but within Center for Discovery, it's a six-day-a-week, seven-hour-a-day program. So our clients are not living with us. They come into the facility, um, participate in, again, group therapy, supportive meals and snacks, and individual sessions throughout the day. Um, and it, at that level of care and, and the levels lower, this is when folks are really starting to reintegrate back into their lives. So this is where we're bridging that gap between, uh, like, we're really building up that personal accountability. Because at the end of our program day, our clients go home, um, whatever that might look like, whether they live alone, whether they're there with roommates, family members, whoever, um, and they're really having to carry over their recovery gains into their everyday life. And we're figuring out, what new struggles are going to be coming up and how do we need to tackle them. So that person comes back into program the next day and we talk about maybe what came up the night before, that morning before they came in, and how are we going to maybe do it differently tonight or tomorrow morning. The next level of care down is um, the intensive outpatient program. It's three hours a day, five days a week. So again, even uh, more integration back into real life. This is when a lot of our clients are back participating, maybe even just part-time in school, work, volunteer opportunities, et cetera. And again, just giving that structure and support of having this kind of safe place to come back to to talk about whatever struggles may have come up um, outside of the facility uh, to just, again, further strengthen those coping skills such that when a client is ready to graduate from our program and just, you know, be 100% back in their life, just working with an outpatient team, they have the tools to be able to navigate kind of the snags that might come up. I guess one of the biggest way, I don't know if you guys can correct me, that people might think the initial, if we go back, kind of we're going to make a full circle here, to the beginning about body image. Um, those, the, and Brendan, how you said the glacier, like you see the tip of the glacier, but there's all this other stuff below. Mm-hmm. If you can mm-hmm. share a little bit about just the humanity in all of us and that, that how we can create because kind of social change. I, I try to encourage people to think of others because why there's no fault but, you know, no one's necessarily to blame externally. But as a society, we're all participating. So if we look at just even that idea of body image, how we could all have a more holistic relationship with our physical being and how it interacts with the world and what that might look like. If it's okay for me to ask this question. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because we all have social media, we all have Instagram, you know, everyone on some level. So we're being impacted more than even like 30 years ago or 20 years ago, or actually because 10 years ago is when all these technologies came in. So we're being impacted in a way that I think impacts all of us, that 
you, you see people that are putting something out there that no matter how great you feel about yourself, it impacts you, or how not great you're feeling about you, it can really impact you. And um, so if you can share a little bit about how we can all be socially aware and conscious with our own physical being based on how we are today <laughs> and how we can, you know, help the whole in that perspective. That's a big question. I think that's kind of the, the question of, of our era and probably, yeah. probably continue, you know, will continue to, to be. I think the first thing I think of Suzanne, honestly, is um, kind of to get angry, to get mm. angry about the way that, that things are and where so much of the focus of our society is. So as opposed to being, um, acknowledged and recognized maybe for, you know, who, who we actually are for like the components of our, of our soul. So often it's, it's about being recognized for what's put out there. And, and we have, you know, a deal of control over that in our own lives. Um, but I think it really takes a concerted effort for people to show up in their relationships and build their connections around their souls rather than their presentation or their image. Um, and so I say get angry because, you know, I think about if, if my, you know, if at my funeral, if in my eulogy, you know, the speaker is, is, is highlighting, you know, I don't know, the, the clothes that I chose to wear or the shape of my body or, you know, anything like that, like, it's absurd to think of. Like, I want to be known for something more. And I think it takes um, people getting angry about that sort of thing and, and the changes that each of us might make in our relationships or in our lives or how we portray ourselves. Like, it's these small efforts that I think change a society. I mean, that's the ultimate hope, I guess. If nothing else, um, at least it'll impact that person and maybe their specific circle. I try to encourage staying engaged and and really uh, eliciting your own sense of curiosity about the world. Um, I always think uh, if I can share a little uh, story. There's um, this was told to me a long time ago, and it it it, it, it is the thing that kind of keeps me uh, remembering this idea of, of how to keep my curiosity going. Um, was that a, a father and a son are, are having a catch. And uh, every time the father throws the ball to the son, the son uh, doesn't catch it uh, because the ball occurs as uh, something dangerous. Uh, so the, uh, the father says, okay, I'm going to throw the ball to you one more time. Uh, tell me, when the ball is in the air, tell me which way the seams are turning. So he throws the ball one more time and the son catches it. And what's changed is the son's relationship to the ball because now he is curious about something that occurred as something dangerous. Mm. Um, and it, it is that curiosity that I think is going to keep us engaged and keep us critical of the information that is constantly we're being barraged with, um, stuff that we just assume is supposed to be how it is. Uh, but a lot of times you know, when we get a little curious about things, we start to realize, oh, there's other ways of being around this. Um, there's other ways to be. So, so there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so then I'll also share a little bit because if, if we don't want to be known for uh, some of the things that we put, put out there, if both of you could share an example of that, example of what we might put out in the world that would express our true nature maybe one that we're afraid to express uh, versus something in physicality that is just, I don't know, like a magazine ad. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, if, if, you know, how to, how to share your soul, how to share your, your deep essence that makes you you uh, versus putting on a story or an image that you think the world wants, or wants to receive or is the only way they'll accept you. Um, I, I tell my clients, and this is, um, might be out of the handbook of what would sound like worst things a therapist could say. Um, I always say to lead with fear, which again, mm. sounds quite backward, 
Um, I mean, the the field we work in, I should be inspiring confidence and, and encouragement and lead, you know, lead with strength. But how I mean it is if we put out there the things that we are most fearful of, the things that make us feel most insecure, make us feel most vulnerable, we take the power away from them. So I think mm. the best way that I've, at least maybe just in my own life, found to portray myself or communicate my my soul to the people in my life who, you know, are around to experience that is to acknowledge my insecurities, acknowledge my vulnerabilities, and communicate in a straightforward manner. Somebody told me years ago, again, I'm not claiming any of these things as my own, there's nothing you you can say that can't be repaired. Um, mm. And that for me just sounded like a huge deal of permission to mm. continue to, to be curious, to acknowledge that I'm a work in progress and to share that permission with other people, mm. I think invites everyone else to show up authentically, whatever that means on a given day. Cause I think it's a, it's a, an ever evolving thing. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Brendan, do you want to share how to share your soul? <laughs> it's such a subjective thing, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 47. I think I'm still figuring that out, to be honest. Right. Uh, and, and I don't know that there's uh, – I think that's an ever evolving – I hope it's an ever-evolving yeah. uh, thing. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Emily and I are, are of one mind, and, and you know, I'm, a lot of what she said I, I – completely agree about relationships and communication and, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of like just kind of owning who you are in the moment, uh, mm-hmm. warts and all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, I think I'm still figuring that one out as well. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a great question. And, you know, it's, I, that to me is the work. I mean, you know, absolutely. that's, uh, you know, when you think about like what you're doing, well, like, what are, what are we even doing here, right? I mean, <laughs> if we're going to get weird and existential, but, like, what are we even doing here? I think that's a large part of it is that is this ongoing journey of figuring out how, how I'm going to be who I am in every moment. I think a big consideration in all of this, too, is, like, how do you want to spend your time, whatever it, you know, whatever this does all mean, right? You, yeah. can, you can walk through this light hiding your warts and presenting in a certain way and ensuring that people see you as, stoic or whatever it might be, um, you know, and all your energy might be poured into showing up in your life in a certain way, as opposed to just, just showing up in your life and kind of seeing what comes of it allows for the possibility of a lot more enjoyment, a lot more inspiration. And for me, a lot less, at least like stress and, and worry. Yeah, absolutely. A lot more freedom as you guys were speaking. It's, a lot, there's a lot of freedom, and I think people, when they're around people that are, you know, very avant-garde, they're very comfortable with sharing all of who they are, there's a comfort in it. Even if some of what they're sharing is horrifying, <laughs> like, they're mm-hmm. like, ah, I can't believe they said that. But there's a freedom yeah. to it because it's like, wow, yeah. that, that feels so true. Like, I don't have to agree with you or think that's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it, it feels good because it's, it's, you can feel the freedom from the person when they're, they're yeah. sharing from that perspective versus when it's really guarded or positioned. Um, beautiful. Uh, so what I'd like to do is if, to wrap this all up, and I appreciate you guys going into this area because that helps the listeners too uh, mm-hmm. out there that are doing their own inner work, you know, learning how to keep evolving with themselves and going out into the world the best they possibly can each day. One, if you could just share a simple call of action to anyone that might be suffering with a relationship with themselves and their maybe food, maybe uh, mental health, any of these things that they might be aware of but they don't, ha- don't have the courage to take the, the, that step forward, if you can just share maybe a call to action for them that might move them in the right direction. I, I would just say that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of people out there struggling with similar issues. Uh, I think to a certain degree, everybody is afraid. You know, since we are relational beings, uh, there's power in, in 
just allowing yourself to get some help. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, just to know that you, you are not alone. Someone, somebody else out, is out there dealing with the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think, I guess my call to action would be, I don't know, in the immediate and the very pragmatic sense, practice something today that makes you feel connected in your life. Um, you know, I, I think when folks are thinking about tackling maybe some stuff that they struggle with, they think, wow, that seems like too big a mountain to climb. Like, I don't know that I can, can call a therapist. I don't know that I can look into this sort of thing. The first step in, I think, overcoming mostly anything in our life is to, to do so in community. And so whatever community looks like for you, whether it's one friend 3,000 miles away, whether you have a super present and strong community, you know, immediately around you, get connected because that's the thing that, that gets people well. That's the thing that, that keeps us all, you know, well and on the path that we, that we want to be on, I think. Yeah. So, one, I want to thank you guys for being here and sharing your wisdom and what the Center for Discovery has to offer. If you can just share where someone, if they're in immediate need, could call in to get help. Uh, your web address, we'll put it below, but I feel like it, it helps to orate it. Anywhere else that's easy for listeners to find you guys, because you are a national organization, which is super beneficial. Yes, we certainly are everywhere. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah for anyone who's interested on just kind of additional resources, uh, additional information, maybe some opportunities for uh, support that are open to community members, um, you can go to centerfordiscovery.com. Also at supportinrecovery.com is a list of where all of our free support groups are. Again, open to community members. No, um, you know, you're not signing up for anything. You're not entering into treatment. We, we offer weekly at all of our outpatient locations, weekly hour-long support groups that uh, require no commitment. But are just, uh, I think, a more approachable way for somebody to get a better understanding maybe of what they're struggling with or what their loved one might be struggling with as we offer those groups to both people in their struggle or in their recovery and then separate groups for loved ones and family members who are curious mm. or needing support themselves around dealing with that, that process. Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate both of you, and I, you, Center for Discovery has a warm place in my heart. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for your, yeah. your curiosity about this and, yeah, the opportunity. We really appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank Emily and Brendan for being here today, and please check out the Center for Discovery for yourself or share it with friends and family. And until next time, this is Suzanne signing out with Be Simply. <laughs>